0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry, or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in verses 46 through 55 that Ina just uh, read for us. As you're turning there, uh, if you're new, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. And if you're visiting us, maybe for the first or second time, just want you to know we're thrilled... Uh, that you joined us we 're honored to have you here uh, worshiping with us i don 't know uh, where you are in your relationship with God or your thoughts about God or church or anything like that, but just want you to know that you 're welcome here and pray that you have experienced e- even in your in, in the first few minutes here something of the the love of Jesus uh, among us if you 're watching online from wherever you are uh, thank you for for joining us uh, luke one forty six through fifty five is is one of my favorite passages in scripture it 's a a song sung by a courageous young woman who just found out that she'd be the mother of Jesus. And, and so in her song, what we hear and what we're looking at this month is the promises of God in this season uh, of Advent. And the promise that we'll see this morning is that God sees. So Mary declares the goodness of God, and in that declaration, she says that God sees me, and that's a promise for her it's a promise for you. God sees you. Let me do a little bit of work to to, to set us up this morning. In November of 2007, I proposed to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Carrie, and I was in Bible college at Dallas at the time. She was down at Texas A&M, and we both were... Oh, God bless you. Okay. <laughs> um, we were both uh, on break, and I took her to a, a park in North Dallas, and I had... Uh, scattered boxes along this trail at the, at the park and invited her to walk with me. And so as we walked, we would come to these different sets of boxes. And so the first set of boxes along the trail was uh, uh, in, in one of them were things from my childhood, like my early elementary years. And then in another of them were things from her childhood. So in mine, it was like my favorite action figures and a pair of shoes and like a picture from me in fourth grade or something like that. Uh, and then in hers was like a, a doll that she had and like ballerina slippers. And, and so those were things from her childhood, my childhood. And then we we kept walking and came to another set of boxes. And in that set of boxes were things from, one box had things from my teenage years and another box had things from from her teenage years. So in her box it were all these awards that she had won and all these trophies that she had, right? And in my box were a lot of participation trophies, and <laughs> things that said, like, good effort, Jamin, on them, and all that. Um, and we keep walking, and then instead of two boxes, it's one box, and it's a box from our, our dating years, our early dating years. I'd kept the receipt from our first date. Uh, I had the first gift she ever gave me, which, which was a Coldplay CD, and that's when I knew that it was right. Um, (Laughter) And then we come to the last box, which just had a Bible in it, and I opened that Bible and I read from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus talks about marriage and he says, and the two shall become one flesh. And what, what I'd been trying to capture in all of the walking in and, and boxes is that for most of our lives we had lived two separate lives, but what I believed that 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 God was doing, what I believed that God wanted, what I wanted, uh, was, was for God to make those two lives one. And I wanted to know if she wanted that too, and so I asked her to marry me, and to the shock and surprise of many, including my grandma, true story, she said, yes, I will marry you. And that was November. Uh, We got engaged, I think, probably by the end of the week. She had, Carrie's a planner, and so by the end of the week, she had like a venue booked, and we had a date on the calendar for July 26th of 2008. And so for those seven months, it was a really unique season of life. Some of you are in that season of life right now. Being engaged is a really... um, exciting and difficult and and interesting um, kind of reality to live in. And and here's why. Because for those seven months, it, it means that we were living in between two really important moments. We were living in between two really important events that were inseparable from one another, right? One was a past event, which is, was a proposal. The other is a future event, which was a wedding. And so I was, in those seven months, living in between her, I, I, I will marry you, and, and looking forward to her, I do. And almost everything about life was changed by and shaped by living in between those two realities. Uh, almost immediately, the way I spent my time changed and the way I, I spent or didn't spend money changed, right? I had two jobs at the time while we were engaged. I got a third part-time job just to save up for, for what was coming. In that time, we looked for uh, an apartment where we would, where we would uh, live together after we got married, and so all of, of that shaped it. And, and we knew because of... of, of people in our lives and influences in our life. We knew marriage was going to be really, really hard, and the thing that that made marriage hard mostly was us and each of our own problems. And so there was character preparation in that time. That We read books on marriage, and we went through premarital counseling and tried to prepare as much as you can for for the, the reality of marriage and difficulty of marriage. But here's my point. If you had asked me in that time. Uh, of engagement. If you had asked me uh, almost about anything that I was doing, Jamin, why are you doing this? The answer would have been, well, because I'm engaged. Because I, I can look back, and she said, I will marry you, and I can look forward to when she says, I do. And so there's something in the past and something in the future, and everything about my present, or most things at least about my present, is shaped by that reality. This is our second week of Advent. And Advent reminds us every year that Christianity is that kind of life. All of Christianity is that kind of life. Advent means arrival. It's Latin. It means arrival or coming, and it points two directions. It points backwards and it points forward. In the past, Jesus came. After centuries of waiting for the Messiah, the people of God, waiting in hope for God to send the promised one, Jesus sent our God sends his son Jesus to the earth to rescue and redeem. And what he does in his life is he establishes his kingdom, which is the world. That this world has been waiting for, the world that this world was made for, and he dies on a cross for sin. He comes back to life in resurrection, and he is the death defeating Lord of heaven and earth who ascended to the right hand of God. And right now he rules and reigns and intercedes for you and for me. In the future, Jesus will return, he will come again. He will bring with him peace and justice and joy forever and ever. And when he returns, faith will be satisfied, hope will be realized, love will be perfected, uh, and we will see Jesus face to face, and we will enjoy our God, Father, Son, and Spirit in a renewed heaven, in a renewed earth, in uninterrupted joy forever and ever. That's what's coming. And you, Christian, you live in between those two events The most true thing about your life, whatever's going on in your life, is that your life is situated between the advents of King Jesus and everything about your present is to be shaped by looking back in the past at what Jesus has done and looking forward into the future at what He will do. If you've put your trust in Jesus, if you've received forgiveness for sin and mercy for every day, if you've laid down your life before Him and you long to become like Him, then your life is entirely shaped by what He has done and what He will do. The Advents of our King. It's a season of engagement that you're living in where Jesus in His first Advent uh, has pledged to us what will be consummated in His second Advent. And living in between that, everything about our present is shaped by past and future. That is the truest story about your life. That's the truest story about your life. I don't know of anything more important to the Christian life than holding on to that story. And and one of the things that makes this season so important is I don't know of anything easier in the Christian life than forgetting that We talk about this often, the Advent story, the true story of Jesus is not the only story around us. There are a lot of false stories around us that vie for our attention and for our affection. I was at a little league field a few months ago for one of my kids' games, and it was an especially crowded day. The complex where he plays uh, was hosting a lacrosse tournament, like a college club lacrosse tournament that day, and so it was packed with people. And as I was walking from the parking lot by myself into the complex, I felt a little hand grab onto my hand and start walking with me. And uh, I looked down and it was a boy, probably about four years old, that I've never seen before and I didn't know. And he was holding onto my hand and following me through the crowds. And I stopped and I looked at him and he looked up at me and this look of terror just comes across <laughs> his face, which hurt a little because I don't, I don't think I'm scary. but. Uh, in the crowds, what had happened, I immediately realized in the crowds, he had grabbed what he thought was his dad's hand, and he did not realize that the hand he grabbed was the hand of a stranger until he, look up, he looked up and saw a, a strange face, right? So I turn around, and, and thankfully, I see a dad scanning the crowds, and so I take him back to his dad and so that he can hold on to the hand that's familiar to him. But there's, friends, there's something like that that can happen as we try and navigate this life. Um, If you're here, just by your presence here or or watching online, here's something that I'm I'm assuming about you in the moment, which is a fair assumption, I think. Um, I think for most of us what we would say is, as a Christian, the hand that I want to hold the hand that I want to be leading me through life is the hand of God, the, the hand of, of Jesus, the one who's guiding my steps, the one who's leading me through the crowds is, is the hand that is familiar to me, right? And, and that means living in the true story and living in light of the Advent reality. I'm a Christian living in between Jesus' first and second coming, and I want to hold the hand of God as he guides me through life. And yet what's so easy, what's so easy is to take hold of other hands, life is crowded and distracting and chaotic and and it's easy to grab the hand that, for instance, to grab the hand that says the truest story about you is that you are what you have consumer living in an age of consumption. And so the truest thing about you is that you're measured by what you can accumulate and the money that you have and then and, and the things that that money can do for you, right? You are your stuff. You are your things. That's a false story. And it's one of plenty of false secular stories around us that vie for our attention, that, that compete for our, uh, for, for a place in our heart. And, and, and they are eager for us to live less in the kinds of life that God has for us. And so, what I love about this season as a church is the Advent season is the invitation for all of us to look up, like look up in the crowd, follow the hand you're holding to the face, and then ask Is that God's face? Is it a familiar face? Is it the face of a savior? Is it the face that's tied to the true story of who I am, of what Jesus has done, what Jesus will do, and I can live faithfully in the present in light of that? And we need help to do that. We need help to hold on to God's hand faithfully. And one of the helps that God gives us is his promises, the things that he has promised to do. He has filled His Word and filled your life with pledges that He has made, vows that He has made, and that's the truth that we're considering this Advent. Every week, looking at a different promise that God has made, and we, what John said last week that I thought was so beautiful is we access hope by holding on to promise. In other words, we grow in our faith, we live more fully in the true story by holding on to God's promises, and our hands remain firmly in God's by doing that. Last week, John led us in considering the promise of God's presence, the God-with-us promise. This week, we see the promise of God's sight. God sees you. He sees you. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hang on to verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary has recently found out that she is miraculously pregnant with the Savior of the world. She'll get to the honor of being the mother of the Christ, and she's at her cousin's house, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is much older than her, and uh, Elizabeth has just discovered that she is miraculously pregnant in her own right with John the Baptist. And so these two, it's a beautiful picture, these two faithful pregnant women, uh, one faithful long before her time, and then one, uh, or one pregnant before her time, one pregnant after her time, and they gather together and just marvel at the goodness of God. And so Mary starts singing about it, which was normal then, I guess. She opens her mouth, and out of her mouth becomes this, this song, and it's beautiful, and it's deeply poetic, and it's deeply theological. It's informed by her Bible. It's near to her heart, and it's declared from her mouth. It's called the Magnificat, which is the Latin word for the phrase that starts the song, my soul magnifies the Lord. What I want to focus on is what she says in verse 48. He has looked upon the humble state of his servant. That phrase means he has paid attention to, he has given his eyes to. One commentator translates it this way, and I love it. He has looked upon me with love. He looks and he loves. He sees Mary. God sees Mary. And when she sings her song, she says, because his eyes, he turned his loving gaze on my life and it changed my life. All will call me blessed because God looked on her with love. Okay. Now, hear me. Uh, You and I don't have the same place in God's story as Mary does. No one's a part of anyone else's nativity scene this Christmas, right? Mary is in plenty of people's yards this year, but you probably aren't in anyone else's (laughs) scene, right? Because we don't have the same place or place of honor in God's story as what she does, right? She plays a special role. But her song is not just about her. There's two parts to it. In verse 50, Uh, In verses 46 through 49, she talks about her, what God has done for her. But in verse 50, she talks about us and what God will do for us. He does not just look on Mary with love. He looks on you with love. God sees you. It's a promise from God. You live in between the advents of Jesus. He came. He will come again. And as you faithfully try to follow Jesus and live in that true story, hold on to this promise. God sees you. He looks on you with love. God's sight is on three areas, according to Mary. God sees you as you are. God sees the wrong that's been done to you. And God sees your ordinary faithfulness. God sees you as you are. God sees the wrong that's been done to you and God sees your ordinary faithfulness. The first is that God sees us as we are. He sees the truest version of us. In 48 she says he looked upon, He's looked with love, but what does he see? The humble state of his servant. So Mary is honest here with God about what God sees when he sees her. She's not necessarily talking about her sin. What she's talking about is kind of her whole person. When she says the humble state, she means in society, economically, culturally. She's poor. She has no cultural influence or power to speak of. She does not try to dress that up. She does not try to present herself as being better than she actually is or more than she actually is. She does not say God saw me. God looks on me because of all that I have. No, God sees me because of my potential. No, not even does she say God sees me because I've lived better than other people have lived. No, she knows better. She's a theologian. She's a student of God's word. She knows the God that's been revealed in her Old Testament Bible. He sees all you cannot hide from him. There's no point in lying to God about what is true about me. So she says it this way, I have nothing. I have nothing. There is nothing about me that would attract God's sight. I am lone. I am lowly. Uh, I did not uh, garner God's gaze by being impressive. No, as I am, in my current, lowly, humble state, the God of the universe set his loving eyes on me. She knows that no part of her life is hidden from God. That's true for you, friend. That's true for me. That as you are, God sees you. He sees the most honest, raw, truest version of you right now. And that can be, and maybe in some ways should be, a really scary thought. God, sees all, God has unfiltered, unrestricted access into every part of your life. When COVID started back in March of 2020, uh, we recorded services um, for a couple months. We just did online. Um, many of you probably remember that we're here for that. And and how that worked is right over there in that room, outside those doors, we set up a camera and we would film the service and we'd film it a few days before Sunday and then post it online on Sunday morning. And and I learned really early on in those months that I do not like preaching to a camera. Um, I I was grateful for the technology, still grateful that we're able to to do this for those who need to stay online, but it just felt really awkward. Like I, I, I prefer being in a room with you and seeing your faces even though you mostly just look back with a blank stare for 40 minutes. Um, but at least you blink. Well, the camera did that too, so I don't, I don't know. I, I still like being with you. One of the things that I did like though was the frame of the shot, at least when we did the sermons, the, the frame, you know what I mean, the, the borders of, of what the camera could see, the frame of the shot was basically chest up. And so I only had to think about what people would see inside of a really small frame, right? inside that shot. I only needed to dress for the frame. So one week we recorded in the morning and I got a call late in the evening that somehow we had lost the recording. Something went wrong and I needed to come up and and do the sermon again. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And so I tell Carrie what happened and then I go and I put on a shirt that I would preach in like this. It usually has buttons or or collars and um, looks fine. Um, but what I was wearing uh, at the time that I got the call was I was wearing a pair of, like, basketball shorts. It was late at night. It was just comfortable. And so I put on a shirt but then left those shorts on and was walking out the door to come do the sermon. And Carrie says, hey, what what are you doing? You can't wear that. I said, well, look, it's the camera, it, the frame, it's just, it's just chest up, right? Nobody will know. And she said, but I will know. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but you promised to God that you'd love me no matter what. So I just left. And I did. that's how I did the sermon that night, in the shirt like this and and basketball shorts. I knew I only needed to dress for the frame, right? Anything that was outside of the frame, it didn't matter. I only needed to look like a preacher where I knew people could see. And many, if not all of us, to some degree, live life like that. There's a frame around your life. No one can see everything about you. I don't know what you're thinking right now. I don't know the kind of week that you lived you don't know my thoughts. You don't know the kind of week that I lived. And so for some of us, for all of us at least, there's a, a limit around what others can see into our life, and, and no one sees everything about it. And so for, for many of us, we have simply learned to dress for the frame. We have simply learned to present a projection of us within the narrow window of what others can see about us, the A narrow window of the space of our life where other people's eyes fall. There are things. You're a human. I'm a human. Here's what it means. There are things about my life and things about your life that are really messy, really dysfunctional, uh, really broken. There's sin in our life. There are things that are embarrassing about our lives. Or even there are just things about our lives where we don't, we're not actually as strong as we try to present that we are. Uh, We're not actually as confident as we would like others to think that we are. We're not as religious as we would like others to think that we are. And those are the things that we work especially hard to keep out of sight. We try to control just what's in the frame and what's easy to believe, a false promise that's easy to hold on to in this life is that freedom is found in keeping the worst parts of us hidden from others controlling the frame of what others see and and what others don't see And, and as long as i can convince others that i'm doing better than i actually am then i never have to deal with the mess in my life i never have to deal with the parts of me that are most unacceptable that are hardest to look at that's not true that is not true that does not lead to freedom. It leads to exhaustion. It leads to this slave to this uh, cycle of managing the ever increasing gap between who I want people to think I am and who I actually am. Here's something. God doesn't play that game. He sees you. He sees all of you. He knows everything about you. He sees outside of the frame of where other people's eyes stop. His don't end. And that's a scary thought, because if that's true, then none of the dressing up that I have learned will help me hide from his sight behind the ways I try to appear strong. He sees all of my weakness behind the ways I've tried to appear pure. He sees the lust in my heart behind the ways I've tried to appear steady. He sees all of my anxiety and all of my fear behind the ways I try to appear like I have it all together. He sees me. He sees the needy, disheveled, vulnerable, sinful, truest version of me. And, And what that means is if my mechanisms for hiding are useless before a God who sees all, my only hope is that somehow he can see and help. My only hope The only shot I have is that he is the kind of God who can look and love at the same time. Here's the good news. That's exactly who he is. That's exactly who he is. Mary knows that God sees her in what she calls God. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. His mercy is for those who fear him, she says. God looks and he loves. God sees and he saves That's the good news of the gospel. In a culture where the pressure is to pretend, where we carry day after day, led by pretense, the good news of the gospel, the true story of Advent is that we are loved right where we are. We look back at the cross of Jesus and we can stand confident before a God who sees us as we are because when He looks at us, He sees us through the lens of Jesus, who has covered and cleansed and paid for everything we would want to hide so that we are now both clearly seen and unconditionally loved at the same time. And we look look forward to when Jesus returns, when he comes again and he finishes in us what he has begun. He presents us holy and blameless and beautiful. He makes us what we were always meant to be. And so right now, in between the advents of Jesus, we hold to the promise. He sees you and he loves you. He looks and he loves. Here's what's happening right now. I think one of the stranger's hands that many of us are tempted to hold in a moment like this. And the one that guides us through life and guides us through moments like these is the one that just quietly accuses in your conscience that's true for others, but it's not true for you. That might be true for everyone else in this room, but it's not true for you. The gospel is good news for everyone except not you. God God sees you and he recoils at the sight of you. God looks and he leaves. He wants nothing to do with you. The gospel is good news for everyone except you because you are some especially broken exception, destined for dread, impossible to love, easy to reject. That's not true. That hand that leads you in that lie belongs to the face of a stranger. That's not the face of Jesus. Christian, God looks at you and he loves you. He sees you through the lens of Jesus and has covered and cleansed and paid for everything you would want to hide. And so you, yes, you right now are both clearly seen and unconditionally loved at the same time. And that means it's okay that you are not right now who you should be. It's okay that you're not right now who you should be. You can be honest about that. You can know that God looks and loves, and here's how you can respond. You can respond in the freedom of being honest with those around you, that parts of your life, if not a lot of your life, is still really messy and broken. Is your marriage in a really rough place right now? Uh, Something about the holiday season, I don't quite know why it works, but there's something about the holiday season that just makes some of the conflict that we've suppressed for an entire year just bubble up to the surface. Um, One of the worst times of year for marriages is the holiday season. I'm sure there's a lot that goes into that. I wonder if some of it isn't that we uh, just grind and we just get carried by the busyness of work. And so as soon as there's some sort of disruption to the busyness of life, the fights that we fought last year in the holidays, just we fight them again. And yet it's worse now because we didn't deal with what was revealed last year. And so this is a time where it's likely that there's a marriage in the room, if not multiple, that would say, we're in a really rough spot right now. And here's the tendency. The tendency is to want to control what others see inside the frame of your marriage, to to manage your marital mess in a way that no one knows how bad it actually is. God sees, God sees, and God knows. And He looks and loves. He looks and He loves each of you as an individual. And he looks and he loves and hopes for and holds out a dream for a better marriage than the one that you have. He sees that, and because he looks and loves, he wants to draw you out into honesty, asking for help. You probably can't do it, just the two of you. Asking for help, uh, for someone to lead, looking to your community to come and help put the pieces of your life and your marriage and your home back together. And what kind of person, as embarrassing as that might be, As as much vulnerability as that might require, what kind of person can raise their hand and say, we need help? The one who already believes that God sees and knows all. And so no one will discover anything about us that God doesn't already know. And so we can ask for help with confidence. Is your fear and anxiety paralyzing you? And the tendency is to fake a smile in hopes that no one asks you what's wrong because you can't really handle that question right now. You want comfort, but comfort takes work and honesty and energy that you don't have. And so you settle for coping because coping is easier. God sees you. He knows how scared you are. You don't have to fake smiles with him because he looks and loves. He wants to draw you into honesty about what all that fear reveals and draw you into letting someone else walk with you in that. This is what I mean, friends. When we talk about living in the true story, it means in real time, responding in obedience and confidence that if God sees me, then I can live this life with honesty. Look, friend, do you have an entire life that's lived in the darkness and no one but you knows about? Secret sin that rules your life right now. There are no secret sins to God. To God, there are only sins that we try to cover or there are sins that we have confessed that Jesus might cover them. And you can walk in the light and walk in freedom. God sees you because he looks and loves. We are free from the tyranny of pretending. Hold on to that promise. God sees you as you are and God sees the wrong committed against you. There's something really confrontational about Mary's song. I wanna read a passage from it to you again. He has shown strength with his arm. Listen to the discomfort of it. It's not very Christmassy. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Mary's anywhere from 13 to 16 when she sings this song. And this young woman already knows something about life. It can be really cruel. It can be really unjust, especially people. Can be really cruel. And so, in this part of the song, you hear what she believes is God sees wrong that's been committed against her. God sees the wrong that's been committed against her people. And what she's crying out is she's crying out for justice. It's confrontational. In fact, in the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned the public reading of Mary's song because they thought it was too politically subversive. They thought it was too critical of those who are in power. The mighty did not like hearing about being brought down from their thrones. And it's language of, of justice. Mary lived under an oppressive Roman empire and it wasn't the power in and of itself that was bad. This song is not about anarchy. It's that the power was used in a way that exalted the powerful and hurt the powerless and God cares about that. Mary here sings in hope that the son in her womb would one day make right the world, which means bringing justice to those who have been wronged. This, this can be a, a really... Um, Destabilizing time of year for many because this season comes with the expectation that life is filled with cheer and holiday optimism, right? It's the most wonderful time of the year. But we live in a broken world, and so many in the room right now feel more brokenness than you do cheer. The season is the most wonderful time of the year, sure, but maybe this is the lowest point of your life. And so, what do you do with that? It's hard to reconcile that with the tone of the season. Advent is not the same as the holiday season. Advent is a time that makes room for that kind of tension. Advent reminds us that all will be made right, but it does not claim that all is right right now. And Mary knew that. Mary sang, think about this, Mary sang this song about God's victory over evil, about making everything right, about the powerful being brought down from the thrones, and then she was ostracized by her religious community because they didn't believe her story. She was almost divorced from her husband, had an angel not visited him, and intervened. And then she was chased out of her home country by a jealous king who killed over 30 baby boys on his way to trying to kill hers. The light of the world is in her womb. There's a song of hope in her mouth, and there's a lot of trouble in her life still. Things didn't get easier for her. She sings the mighty have been brought down from their thrones, and then she lives in exile for the first few years of her son's life because the mighty from their thrones are trying to bring her and her family down still. The promise that she's holding on to, the song that she's singing, is that everything will be made right, and yet there's still a lot of wrong, and she knows that. So if you feel a bit disconnected from all the cheer because you're not sure how to fit in the holiday spirit, there's a place for you in God's story. There's a place for you in the Advent story. The claim is that everything will be made right, not everything is right right now, and we can be honest about that. But as we wait, part of waiting faithfully, part of not uh, uh, growing bitter, part of not growing uh, into a place of, of, of despair is to believe that God sees. And so for some, that means remembering that God sees the loss, God sees the pain just of, of, of living in a broken world. And then especially if we lean into Mary's song, God sees the wrong that others have committed against you. God sees that. You have been wronged by other people in this life, and or you will be wronged by others. You'll be sinned against, and God sees all of it. Have you ever been treated as less than because of the color of your skin? God saw that. Have you ever been taken advantage of by someone that you thought you could trust? God saw that. Have you ever been spoken to in dehumanizing ways, someone used their words to wound you in a way that made you feel not human? God saw that. Could you craft a sentence about the wrong committed against you, and it'd be so heartbreaking that I couldn't even read it in a room like this? God saw that. Friend, he saw that. He has done, and he will do something about it. We get really uncomfortable often around the idea of God's justice because a just God means there is judgment from God. But make no mistake, God is the God who scatters the proud. He's the God who brings down the mighty. His arm is full of strength, and he knows how to use it with perfect justice. All wrongs will be righted which means all sin will be punished. And that happens either in the cross of Christ as those who trust in Jesus have their wrongs forgiven and cleansed, or that happens in the return of Christ as the sword of Jesus conquers God's enemies and brings to account anyone who dared pollute God's good world with their sin and refused to seek God's mercy. You see both in these verses. Some get mercy, some get scattered. And what that means for you when you're wronged is that the answer to the wrongs committed against you is either in Jesus' first advent or his second advent. The answer to every wrong committed against you, sin is either covered in Christ's cross or it is confronted in Christ's return. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it means we don't fight for things to be made right now. I'm not saying there are no consequences in the present for those who have wronged you. I am also not saying that it means we withhold forgiveness and lust for the day when our enemies are crushed. Jesus taught us to love our enemies, extend mercy that we have received to others. What I am saying is this, as you live in between the first and second advents of Jesus. God sees you. He sees the wrong that's been done to you. And because his eyes are on you, you can entrust like Jesus all of your life to the God who judges justly. You can entrust it to God. Vindication will come from God, clear, righteous judgment will come from God. And so you don't have to live like what's most true about you is that you're the victim of wrong. You can live like what's most true about you is that you're a child of God. And anything that you've lost in this life or anything that's been taken from you in this life cannot compare to the inheritance waiting for you when your savior returns. You can hold on to that promise. God sees you. He will make all things right in his time. He sees you as you are. He sees the wrong committed against you. And he sees your ordinary faithfulness every day. Verse 48 again and 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The way that it works in the Christian life, the order is that God is great. God is great. And God who is great can do great things for me. I went to a Mavs game last week with six of my friends. So there were seven of us total. And my kids were offended because they think I should only ever have fun with them. Um, and they asked who all is going. And I told them and, and they realized how many were going. They said, you know, I said, there's seven of us total. And my son thought about it for a minute and did the math. And he said, dad, you have enough people going where you guys could do that thing where you, where you, paint something on your stomachs and don't wear a shirt and like spell out a word, right? Like Dallas with an exclamation point. He had all these ideas. And he said, you think you'll do that? And I said, Pro- uh, probably not. And he couldn't believe He said, dad, why? I said, well, I, I really like my job. I just really, I really like it. I want to keep it. And my daughter chimes in and she says, but dad, you could be on the Jumbotron which in her mind is the highest honor that you can achieve by making it onto the, the Jumbo-Chan. For, because for a few seconds, right, all of the eyes in the arena are on you. So why would you not want to do whatever you could to get that kind of moment, right? And, and that's, an, that's an okay way, if not a, a great way, to, to view the Mavs game. But that's a terrible way to view your life. And yet, in our culture that worships fame, Uh, that minimizes ordinary. It's easy to measure life in those kinds of spectacular moments, to believe that life only matters if there's something I'm doing that's getting a lot of something, getting a lot of attention or making a lot of money or having a lot of eyes on me. If I do something great and people see me as great, then I'll be celebrated as great, and then maybe my life will have meaning. And so we measure value in terms of the amount of sales or the amount of views or the amount of likes or the amount of followers, right? God doesn't work like that. God sees and celebrates ordinary faithfulness. Mary says, God is great, I don't have to be. I can simply be faithful and trust the mighty one will do great things for me. One commentator said this about this verse and I thought it was so beautiful. Generations will see her, Mary, as an example of a simple human touched by divine power and presence. Just a simple human touched by divine power and presence. Can I suggest to you, my friend, that that is the greatest honor you could have in this life. That is the greatest achievement that could ever be named about, the greatest accolade you could ever be given. Not a spectacular human who somehow got eyes on them. That's so fleeting. A simple human touched by divine presence and divine power, and that's the story you live in. In the Advent story, you have the Spirit of God. Jesus promises his presence, and so you are free to simply be faithful and know that God sees. Free to be faithful. And know that God sees and trusts God. If God wants to exalt, He'll exalt. If God wants to expand your life, if God wants to grow some sort of domain He's placed you in, let Him do that. You just be faithful. He's great, He'll do great things. What I believe, church, please hear me, what I believe is needed in this moment. So much talk right now about the changing culture and what's happening to Christianity and the future of the church and what will things look like for our kids or grandkids. What is needed as much as anything right now is for Christians to have a growing stamina for unseen obedience. A stamina for unseen obedience. I can obey Jesus and not get any attention for it, and guess what? I can do it again, and I can do it again, and I can do it again, and I can live a whole long lifetime of obedience because as long as God saw, that's more than enough. He sees. He sees your ordinary faithfulness, the prayers that you pray. He sees that. The way you give your time and resources and gifts, he sees that. The family member you pray for every day to come to know Jesus, a brother, a child, a parent, a neighbor, he sees that. The sin that you resist faithfully, he sees that. The relationship where it's so difficult to love and yet you press in and move in closer because you know it honors God, he sees that. You are one of a few Christians at your workplace and you have a bigger dream there than making money. You wanna live on mission there, he sees that. Some of you spend every morning in God's word and you just started doing that or maybe you've done that for years. Keep going, God sees it. All of it matters. None of it's wasted because God sees you don't have to be great. God is great, and the great one sees your ordinary life. He has done. He will do great things for you. You live in between Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his return. His promises hold us in that story, and he has promised that right now he sees you. He sees you as you are, loves you still. He sees the wrong committed against you, and he sees your ordinary, faithful obedience. Keep going. God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Maybe what's needed this morning for some is not even a whole sermon, but just a simple reminder that no one in the room is hidden from you. You haven't lost any of us. You know right where we are. And for some, that can, that can be uncomfortable because the response that's needed is confession and honesty. Pray that you would give strength by your spirit to do that. Uh, for some God to commit right now in this moment, I'm not going to live another moment in hiding You see, and the only kind of um, truth that could draw someone into that kind of risk is that what is meeting us right now is a God that sees and saves, a God that does not look and recoil, but one who looks and loves. And that's who you are, God. Maybe how others need to hear that and register that in their own heart this morning is that, in the midst of a difficult season, they're not lost, God. You see them. You know the wrong in their life. You know the wrong committed against them. You're watching. You're perfect. You have plans. You're righteous. And they can trust you. They can trust you. I thank you that what is miraculous about this church is not any one person or any one gift or any one event. What's miraculous about this church is it's a people filled with story after story of ordinary lives. Faithful to you. Ordinary, unseen obedience. And it's enough. Strengthen. Encourage. Give grace. We need you. Amen.